Blog Talk Radio. Study Radio with Douglas V. Gibbs here on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, you can read what I write at politicalpistachio.com. Learn more about what I do at douglasvgibbs.com. It's a rainy morning here in California, so if you hear the raindrops in the background uh, slamming on my roof of my office, that is why. Uh, we took a little bit of a break because uh, I was really sick. Uh, didn't even have a voice, but now I'm back to continue on. We're working our way through the Constitution. When we get through the final uh, bit of the Constitution, we're going to go into the 25 myths of the Constitution. Then we'll start all over with the United States Constitution. If you've missed episodes in the past, um, all of these episodes are archived. You can go back and listen to any show that you want. Today we're going to work our way through the 22nd through 25th Amendments. We are almost done with the United States Constitution. The uh, 22nd Amendment was passed in 1951. It was designed to ensure no president could seek a third term. Though the the Constitution did not limit the number of terms a president could serve prior to this amendment, many consider the fact that George Washington chose not to seek a third term as evidence the Founding Fathers recognized two terms should be the expected standard. George Washington's popularity would have easily enabled him to be president for the rest of his life and of and many have many even tried to encourage him to be king. However, Washington saw himself as no different than everyone else and recognized the presidency as a privilege to serve. He felt that more than two terms opened the opportunity for abuse of power by an executive, which would hinge on the idea of a monarchy. Following George Washington, James Madison and James Monroe also adhered to the two-term principle. No presidents afterwards sought a third term, with the exceptions of Ulysses S. Grant, Theodore Roosevelt, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. No president achieved a third term until FDR. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in 1940, became the only president to be elected to a third term. World War II has often been cited as the reason. The public was not fond of the idea of a change in commander-in-chief during such a crucial event in history. In 1944, while World War II continued to rage, Roosevelt won a fourth term. He died before he could complete it. The 22nd Amendment was proposed and ratified during the Truman presidency. The failure of the Founding Fathers to establish a term limit on the president in the early articles of the United States Constitution aligns with a prevailing opinion the framers held that term limits were the responsibility of the voter. Their belief hinged on a reliance on the people and the Electoral College 
and that electorally a third term would be prevented unless the third term was absolutely necessary. Under the 22nd Amendment, the only president who would have been eligible to serve more than two terms would be Lyndon B. Johnson. LBJ was the vice president of the United States at the time of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. After serving the remainder of JFK's term, Johnson had only been president for 14 months. The 22nd Amendment provides that no person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice, and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. Okay, so that that is that. Well, you know, and, and you know, term limits for the president uh, seems to always pop up uh, often, and we have to remember that. I. Uh, once again, the, the ultimate term limits are the voters. The fact that uh, a presidential term limit even exists uh, would be because of the abuse of the standard by FDR. The uh, next uh, t- one, the 23rd Amendment, involves Washington, D.C. The rallying cry during the Revolution, American Revolution, as we have been taught was no taxation without representation. Yet, despite that famous call for revolution, after the United States became a nation, there were those who were taxed without representation in the United States government. The most famous case was Washington, D.C. The movement for representation for Washington, D.C. led to the proposal and ratification of the 23rd Amendment. Washington, D.C. is a 10-mile by 10-mile section of land donated by Maryland and Virginia, to serve as a seat of government. The land was easy for those two states to go to let go of because it was undesirable. While it, while it is popular to say Washington DC sits on swamp land, it is actually a tidal plain, land that was a mix of thickly wooded slopes, bluffs and hills, cropland and several major waterways. The location was chosen by George Washington because of its central location between the northern and southern states as a compromise between Alexander Hamilton and the northern states who wanted the new federal government to assume revolutionary war debts and Thomas Jefferson and southern states who wanted the capital placed in a location friendly to slaveholding agricultural interests. The District was not supposed to be a city in the sense that we see it today. The District of Columbia was not supposed to have a population, for the creation of the District was for the sole purpose of being the seat of the United States government. The Congress was given full power over the functioning of the city, and the inhabitants were supposed to only be the temporary visitors of government officials or employees And the Founding Fathers envisioned Washington, D.C. to be the seat of federal government and a vibrant commercial center. As time passed, Washington, D.C. attracted residents eager to partake in the opportunities offered in the way of government jobs. The incoming population largely consisted of free blacks prior to the beginning of the American Civil War and after the abolition of slavery in the district in 1850. After the war between the states 
the growth of Washington, D.C.'s population exploded. John Adams, the second president of the United States, did not like Washington, D.C. He viewed it as hardly being a city at all and nothing more than a clump of dirty buildings arranged around unpaved, muddy cesspools of winter waiting for summer to transform them into mosquito-infested swamps, unquote. And hi, Iggy Mom. Um, As the population of Washington, D.C. grew during the 20th century, it became glaringly apparent to the residents that their taxation did not accompany representation. At one point, taxation without representation became a rallying cry that Washington, D.C. license plates even held the phrase. After the crisis of representation reached a crescendo, the 23rd Amendment was proposed and ratified, allowing the citizens of Washington, D.C. to vote for electors for president and vice president. The amendment was ratified in 1961. Since Washington, D.C. is not a state, the district's is still unable to send voting representatives or senators to Congress. However, Washington, D.C. does have delegates in Congress that act as observers. The amendment restricts the district to the number of electors of the least populous state, irrespective of its own population. That number is currently three. The 24th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified in 1964, and made it uh, unconstitutional for a state to use payment of taxes as a requirement to vote in national elections. Few blacks could vote in states using poll taxes as a requirement to vote because they had a little money. The poll tax to vote in these states was $1.50. After the ratification of the 24th Amendment, a number of districts continued the practice of requiring uh, a poll tax in order to vote. A woman named Evelyn T. Butts decided to take the poll tax issue to court. In October 1965, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear Evelyn T. Butts' appeal. In 1966, the Supreme Court of the United States declared poll taxes unconstitutional in accordance with the 24th Amendment. A poll tax is a uniformed tax levied on every adult in the community called a capitation tax by the Founding Fathers. Poll taxes have their roots in ancient tax systems and have been criticized as an unfair burden on the poor. Historically, in the United States, poll taxes were enacted in the South as a prerequisite for voting, disenfranchising uh, many African Americans and poor whites. One argument regarding the, the article claims The spirit of the 24th Amendment also disallows closed primaries by leaving out the process, leaving out of the process independent voters. As a result, a number of states have been passing laws enabling their states to make their election primaries open to all voters. In an open primary, you can vote for anyone you want, regardless of party affiliation during the primary election. Some proponents of open primaries contend closed primaries are unconstitutional, a violation of the 24th Amendment. General discontent with the two-party system has emerged in American society. A party system, however, is a natural result of human nature. Every issue is divided by those who... Every issue is divided by those who support the issue and those that oppose it. 
As human beings, we tend to gravitate towards those who think like ourselves. Birds of a feather flock together, after all. And parties ultimately form out of that natural tendency to organize. Once the groups form, they become organizations, appoint leadership positions, and a political party is born. Political parties are the natural result fueled by our own human nature of this kind of political organization. In a party system such as ours, to allow voters to cross party lines in the primaries can be dangerous because it opens up the potential for unethical voting techniques that are designed to injure the other party. Open primaries allow members of opposing parties to vote in their opponent's primary in the hopes of affecting the outcome and putting the weaker candidate on the ballot so that their own party has a better chance to win. If both parties of a two-party system is doing such, the result will always be the two weakest candidates facing off against each other. Open primaries nullify the whole point of the primary elections and often result in the best candidates not being elected. Not all states have primaries, and the rules for choosing candidates for a particular party varies from state to state, as it should. Some states have caucuses, which are meetings of the members of a legislative body who are members of a particular political party to select candidates. The choosing of the delegates varies from state to state. States are given the authority to make their own election rules and maintain the elections in their state according to Article 1, Section 4 of the United States Constitution and reinforced by Article 2. This is why the Florida-Chad controversy in 2000 should have never resulted in the federal courts or even the state courts getting involved. According to the Constitution, the decision on what to do regarding the controversy in Florida in 2000 should have remained with the state legislatures. Some supporters of open primaries contend that closed primaries are in violation of the 24th Amendment because limiting who can vote in a primary by party membership is a poll tax as per implied law. By strict definition, a poll tax is a tax, which would be a monetary amount expected as a prerequisite for voting. Closed primaries do not impose a monetary tax and therefore are not in violation of the 24th Amendment based on the language of the amendment. One may suggest the 24th Amendment applies that no person, I'm sorry, that no action can be taken to close any election to any person, but primaries are simply party-oriented. People who couldn't vote in the primary could have been able to by joining a political party. Regardless of the ability to vote in the primaries, uh, they would be able to vote in the general election and therefore are not being denied the uh, opportunity to participate in the electoral process. And finally, today we were going to talk about the 25th Amendment. 25th Amendment, Section 1 reads, in case of the removal, you know, in the way time's going, I might just do all of them, do 26 and 27 while I'm at it. 25th Amendment, Section 1 reads, in case of the removal of the President of the United States or of his death or resignation, the Vice President shall become President. Section 1 of the 25th Amendment is clear, concise, and to the point. 
after nearly two centuries of questions regarding if the vice president actually became president in the case of the removal, death, or resignation of the president, or was to merely act as president, such as if such an incident would arise, the 25th Amendment sought to clarify without question the confusion that haunted Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6, and the 12th Amendment. When President William Henry Harrison became the first U.S. president to die in office in 1841, Representative John Williams had previously suggested that the vice president would become acting president upon the death of the president. Vice President John Tyler concurred, asserting that he would need to succeed to the office of president, as opposed to only obtaining its powers and duties. Though Tyler took the oath of president, precedent for full succession was established, becoming known as the Tyler precedent, nothing was done to amend the Constitution regarding the procedure. When President Wilson suffered a stroke in 1919, no one officially assumed the presidential powers and duties, and the office of president essentially remained unmanned during the remainder of Wilson's second term. It was clear that a set of guidelines needed to be established. In 1963, a proposal enabling Congress to enact legislation establishing a line of succession by Senator Kenneth Keating of New York based upon the recommendation by the American Bar Association 1960 surfaced, but it never gained enough support. On January 6, 1965, Senator Birch Bayh proposed in the Senate and Representative Emanuel Seller proposed in the House of Representatives what would become the 25th Amendment. Their proposal provided a way to not only fill a vacancy in the office of the president by the vice president, but also how to fill the office of the vice president before the next presidential election. The line of succession the 25th Amendment establishes is as follows. If the president is removed from office, dies, or resigns, the vice president immediately becomes president. Prior to the 25th Amendment, there was no provision for vice presidential vacancies. Under Section 2 of the 25th Amendment, the president nominates a successor who becomes vice president if confirmed by a majority vote of both houses of Congress, which occurred when President Richard Nixon appointed Gerald Ford to be his vice president after Spiro Agnew resigned as vice president of the United States. In Section 3 of the amendment, if the president provides a written declaration to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as acting president. Section 4, which has never been invoked, enables the vice president together with a majority of either the leading officers of the executive department or of such other body as Congress may by law provide to declare the president disabled by submitting a written declaration to the president pro tempore and the Speaker of the House of Representatives. If the president is unable to discharge his duties as indicated, the vice president would become acting president. If the president's incapacitation prevents him from discharging the duties of his office and he himself does not provide a written declaration, the president may resume 
exercising the presidential duties by sending a written declaration to the president pro tempore and the Speaker of the House. If the vice president and the officers of the cabinet believe the president's condition is preventing him from discharging the duties of president, they may within four days of the president's declaration submit another declaration that the president is incapacitated. If not in session, the Congress must, in this instant, assemble within 48 hours. Within 21 days of assembling or of receiving the second declaration by the vice by the Vice President and the Cabinet, a two-thirds vote in each House of Congress is required to affirm the President as unfit. If such actions are satisfied, the Vice President would continue to be acting President. However, if Congress votes in favor of the President, or if the Congress makes no decision within the 21 days allotted, then the President would resume discharging all of the powers and duties of his office. I'm going to go ahead and hit uh, the 26th and 27th Amendment and wrap up the Constitution with this episode, even though I advertised uh, 22 through 25. So the 26th Amendment establishes the voting age at the age of 18, rather than 21 as it was previously. The amendment was proposed in 1971 in an attempt to respond to student activism against the Vietnam War. Originally, President Nixon had signed a law making the voting age 18, but a number of states challenged the law, and under pressure, the amendment was proposed and ratified. The slogan, Old Enough to Fight, Old Enough to Vote, which surfaced as far back as World War II, had finally become a worn-out-enough slogan that the majority began to support it. Arguments of various viewpoints regarding the wisdom of this amendment continue to this day, but one thing is clear. The original argument of old enough to fight, old enough to vote, was a ruse. The Democrat Party was in trouble and desperate for votes. President Nixon was wildly popular. The 1972 election was coming, and the Democrats needed to find a way to gain more votes and to gain them fast. The college-age population was protesting against the war. The younger generation, molded by left-leaning public school teachers and leftist college professors, were ripe for the picking. But most of them were too young to vote. The Democrats knew that if the protesting students could vote, they would vote for the Democrat candidate for president and give the Democrats a fighting chance to gain seats in Congress. The push for the 26th Amendment, though, in part, about old enough to fight, old enough to vote, was in reality an attempt to gain more votes for the Democrats. However, despite the ratification of the amendment in time for the election, allowing people as low as the age of 18 to vote, President Nixon still won the election in 1972 by a landslide. And finally, the 27th Amendment. The final amendment of the United States Constitution. 27th Amendment prohibits any law that increases or decreases the salary of members of the Congress from taking effect until the start of the next set of terms of office for representatives. Ratified in 1992, the proposal remained in waiting for 203 years after its initial submission in 1789. The reason for ratification was anger over a congressional pay raise. Wyoming became the last state to ratify the amendment. Four states, California, Rhode Island, Hawaii, and 
Washington ratified the amendment after the required number of states was met. A battle over whether or not cost of living increases were, are affected by this amendment continues to this day. Currently, cost of living increases take effect immediately without a vote, and that is the last of the Constitution. With five minutes to spare, let me add this. Uh, this uh, series went used, let me rephrase that, went through the book I wrote, The Basic Constitution, an examination of the principles and philosophies of the United States Constitution. You can purchase that book at CreateSpace or on Amazon. Again, the book is The Basic Constitution by Douglas V. Gibbs. Uh, that is what we've been going through. My other book, the earlier book, 25 Myths of the United States Constitution, that's what we're going to begin going through next here on Constitution Study Radio. We're going to go through the 25 myths, and then when we finish that, we're going to start all over again through the basic Constitution. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, spending time with you. Uh, once again, I, pre- I, I apologize for the time that I was away from this show the last few weeks. I uh, was really sick, had a chronic cough, uh, lost my voice. Um, I was on Al Jazeera America on the 30th, and just to keep from coughing uh, into the camera, I munched on five or six ice cubes to numb the back of my throat so I wouldn't cough. Um, So for those of you who saw that video, you saw me kind of look like there was something in my mouth. That's what it was, was I was munching on ice cubes. Um, But now that I'm well and moving forward, I'm going to keep this going. Plus also every Saturday at 2 I am on KCAA AM 1050 with Constitution Radio. And starting soon I'm going to start on KMET AM 1490 out of Beaumont. Uh, with conservative voice radio, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, get a little more TV coming up. Uh, we got some videos we're going to start making. I, uh, if you go to YouTube.com/slash Douglas V Gibbs, the latest one, as of this date, is from that Al Jazeera uh, America interview on the 30th. If you want to learn more about what I do, PoliticalPistachio.com, PoliticalPistachio.com, and DouglasVGibbs.com. Uh, As always, remember this, united we stand, combined we kick butt, and my friend, God bless America, and God bless you. We'll see you next week as we start the 25 myths of the United States Constitution. Thank you for spending the time with me. Bye-bye now.